welcome. Uh, thank you for coming out tonight. And uh, open up your Bibles, if you would. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2, and a little bit of chapter, well, not just a little bit, we'll cover all of chapter 3 as well. Um, and that sounds like a lot, but we'll, we'll explain it more as we go. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 and 3 is what we're going to be in. And uh, to help you follow along, there were uh, handouts in the back, uh, in the narthex. Uh, did anybody not get one of those? Um, hopefully you did. If, if not, um, grab one, because it'll help you to follow along tonight. And there's some key illustrations that I have on there that'll just help you to be able to follow along with what we're talking about tonight. Um, it's always hard to figure out what you're going to preach on when it's just a, a one-time thing uh, and you're not going through a series. But in this case, I've done Nehemiah before. Um, I did Nehemiah 1 a number of years ago, and I figured after like four or five years, you guys have probably had enough time to think on that and dwell on it. I'm sure you, you all got the CD and you listened to it over and over again, so I'm sure by now you've probably processed that enough, and we can move on to two, right? Yeah, okay. No, you're like, I don't even remember. Uh, that's fine. Yeah, I'm going to make this the longest drawn-out series on Nehemiah as possible, um, and I'm on target for that goal. Uh, yeah, so that puts us in Nehemiah chapter 2, because when it came down to it, and I was thinking, what am I going to preach on? Um, I figured, well, it's a great place to just pick right back up again. And Nehemiah is one of my favorite books, um, but you know, jumping into a book presents some challenges, so we'll try and explain where we are uh, so you're not lost. Here's what I want to focus on tonight, and I've got a lot to cover, so I'll try and keep moving. Uh, I want to focus on the characteristics of godly leadership, okay? And so if you have uh, a handout there, uh, you'll see that uh, it has some blanks for you. And hopefully if you took one, you were filling it out before this all began. Uh, that was the intention, at least. And if you want to fill it out now, you can. What do you think of when you think of a godly leader? What are some characteristics of a wise and godly leader? Okay, and if you're really good at this, you can cover up the bottom and don't try and look ahead and see what my outline is. I do have some empty spaces, but I don't want you to cheat, okay? Just try and look at what you've got uh, you know, in those blanks and fill out some things. Just think in your head. And as I preach, you can just continue to, to do that. Um, as we come to the book of Nehemiah, we find a great example of godly leadership. And that's why that's my theme tonight. Uh, when I preached on Nehemiah chapter 1, which was who know, knows how many years ago, uh, we focused primarily on prayer, on prayer, because in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, um, he's presented with this dilemma, this problem. He learns that the, uh, the city of Jerusalem has been burned with fire, and it was, of course, years and years before uh, the time of Nehemiah, but when he realizes it's still in disrepair, he just weeps, and he breaks down, and he prays to God. That's his first inclination to praying to God, and, and he goes before the king and asks if he can do something about it, if he can go back to Jerusalem and start this project, and God grants his request. So what I first want to say, before I get into all these you know, details about what, are, what leadership looks like, uh, I want you to know that the book of Nehemiah isn't only a how-to book. It's not only, Nehemiah was a great guy, we should be like Nehemiah, although I'm going to draw some applications out of that. No, primarily it's a book about God's sovereignty and how God was at work in all of these different things. And as great as a leader as Nehemiah was, he couldn't you know, control the, the, the uh, events of history by himself. He couldn't, on his own, cause the king to have a favorable disposition to him. So there's a lot of things that were beyond his control. So beyond all these practical things, I want you to see this is a book about God's sovereignty. But secondarily, I think there are other lessons that we can learn, specifically about leadership. And so moving on from chapter 1, which was a focus primarily on a leader as somebody who prays, 
Now we're going to get into chapter 2, where Nehemiah has been granted this request to go to the city of Jerusalem to fix the walls. And uh, if you ever need help in understanding or remembering what Nehemiah is about, just remember this, the, the walls were knee-high, right, when Nehemiah was around. Nehemiah, okay? There you go. That's how you remember what the book is about. And I've probably said that before. You've probably heard that before. Um, so here we are in chapter 2. That's the context. Uh, and we're going to dive right into it. Nehemiah, specifically chapter 2, verse 11, through uh, chapter 3, verse 32. That's the passage we'll be looking at. And so it'll be helpful for you to have your Bibles open as I'm reading through this and have in your other hand the handout that I've given you because the illustrations that are on the other side will help you to understand it a little bit better and you'll be able to have your blanks to fill in and you'll be able to see in your Bibles uh, what it is I'm talking about. And there's just way too much scripture for me to put into one, one handout, okay? So that'd be a good way to do it. All right, so uh, you've got an, an outline before you. This is how we're going to go through the passage. Uh, and it says, Nehemiah shows us that wise and godly leaders do certain things or act a certain way or have these godly characteristics about them. And what are those godly characteristics? Well, I already gave you the first one. And the first blank for number one is make prayer a matter of first priority. That's from Nehemiah 1. We already did that a number of years ago, and you can go back and read chapter 1 if you wish. Uh, prayer is your first blank. So first of all, before we get into the contents of this, this chapter, prayer is first and foremost. What's the second blank? Well, let's find out. Let's read some scripture together. Nehemiah chapter 2, I hope you're there, starting in verse 11. I, that is Nehemiah, went to Jerusalem after staying there uh, th for three days, and I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem, and there were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. Verse 13. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up through the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Okay, so again, here we are. The, the situation is that this is after the Babylonian exile, Okay, Nebuchadnezzar has gone through, destroyed the city of Jerusalem many years before, like 140 years before this. And the city is pretty much left in ruins. Now, if you know about the book of Ezra, that's the book that precedes this one. That's a story about how Ezra and Zerubbabel and different individuals go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. So the temple has been rebuilt, but the walls are still destroyed. And this really troubles Nehemiah, and so he goes back and he wants to do something about it. And God is with him. He's granted this request through the king. And now he's going around the walls and he's looking to see what the situation is before he decides to act. Okay, this is uh, something he needs to do uh, before he can get to building. Okay, first, if you look back through the text we just read, uh, first of all, it says that, that he rested. Okay, he rested three days before beginning. Uh, because after all, uh, this was a large journey that he had taken from Susa to Jerusalem. If you flip to the other side of your handout, you'll see this. I put a map on the top, and you'll see just how far away that was for him to travel from the capital of Persia 
to get to Jerusalem. It was not a short trip. Uh, this is between 800 and 900 miles, okay? And that's if you take a direct route, and you can see it's kind of more like an arc shape to kind of be where the, the resources were and where the common roads were at the time. If you were to travel this uh, trip uh, by car, it would take, you know, a certain amount of hours, but it would obviously take you much longer if you don't have a car, which obviously he did not have. It would have taken him months, months to travel uh, to get from one place to the next. And so it makes sense that after he's done with such a long trip, he is going to, uh, he's going to stop and, and rest. I said months. I'm sorry, I have my notes taken a little bit over a month, so maybe months is exaggerating a little bit, but it's a long trip. So after these three days, he begins by selecting a few men uh, and then traveling throughout the city, assessing just how much work needs to be done. And here, this is where Nehemiah shows some wisdom. He doesn't just say, hey guys, I've got this great idea. Let's go rebuild the wall. Okay, he doesn't do that. You see first that he walks around the city, he carefully examines the situation, he plans, and that leads to our second point. That, that is number two, uh, if you go to the other side again, wise and godly leaders, number two, carefully formulate a plan before deciding to, uh, or declaring that plan to others. They carefully formulate a plan before de declaring that plan uh, to others. We learn this uh, in Luke chapter 14. We could bring in many other scriptures that say the same thing. And in it, uh, Jesus says, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. And you might say, yeah, This is a very simple point, Pastor Dave. Yeah, of course he's going to plan it out. But I can't tell you how many leaders make this mistake of not doing this very thing, of getting so excited. You either have somebody who's very passive and you know, sits back and likes to plan, and I think that's probably more me. I probably do too much you know, on the planning side and not enough action. Uh, and there's some people who are just gung-ho. They they're doers, and they want to do things, and they get bored, and they're like, man, this is, this is enough with the meetings, enough with the plans. Let's go do something. And, and there obviously has to be a balance, right? Because um, if he were just jump in here and not really know what he's doing, this is a huge task he's, he's going to do. So yes, God is with him. Yes, he has the experience and he has the, the desire, but he also needs to plan. And that's a key part of being a good leader, I think. And that's something that Nehemiah does well. Um, so if you look back, flip it over again, now that we've filled out number two, you'll see all these gates that are being mentioned, Okay. And they're described in part, but we're, we'll see as we get into chapter 3, more of these gates are going to be uh, revealed to us. And this is a really helpful diagram you see in the bottom in red and yellow that I found online. And uh, I, I studied this passage a few years ago, and I looked for something like this. It's just so cool. The Internet's so awesome, right? Because, uh, like, just five years ago, this didn't exist. Somebody put this together. Very helpful for us to see. And you'll see there's references. If you can read that small, if you've got good reading glasses on tonight, you can see the references uh, to Nehemiah that are uh, contained in that map. But Nehemiah begins by exiting Jerusalem and going through the valley gate. And you can look on there to see if you can find it. Um, it's, uh, it's, un it's next to the Tower of the Ovens. And then it says he went toward the Jackal Well and the Dung Gate. That's how it's phrased, at least in the NIV. Um, then as we move to verse 14, it says, I moved toward the fountain gate in the king's pool. So he kind of, he kind of swung around, uh, but there's not enough room for my mount to get through, he says. Um, 
So, you know, it's kind of describing how he's moving through and understanding where these points are really helps give you a visual picture as to where he's moving. Verse 15, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. He takes a last look at the walls on what would be the southeast side and then turns back and comes into the city. And all in all, when it's said and done, uh, Nehemiah didn't go around the entire wall, but only the southern portion of it in the gates that are described. And, and uh, you'll see that if you look on the right-hand side, that's actually north, okay, according to the picture you have. Um, the reason he probably did this was because Jerusalem was most vulnerable from the north and was most often attacked by northern enemies. And there probably wasn't much left in the wall in the north, so Nehemiah wanted to see what uh, sections did remain, if any. So the north was probably in bad shape. He knew that. But he wanted to see how bad the other section was. The text doesn't tell us how much of the southern wall was destroyed, probably a great deal because we'll see in chapter 3 that he has everybody working all over the place, all around the wall. But whatever the case, um, he decides that there is sufficient work that needs to be done, and so he decides to make his plans public and uh, get the project started. So he gathers all of the town priests and the nobles together, and he motivates them with these words in verses 17 and 18. So look back in your Bible at that. Says, then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they, be, re, uh, excuse me, they began this good work. So that leads us to our third trait of godly leaders. So flip back <laughs> to your outline. I'll give you your third one. A godly leader, number three, can identify needs and motivate others to action in order to address those needs. Okay, let me say that again. Number three is a godly leader can identify needs, that's the blank, identify needs, and motivate others to action in order to address those needs. So it's not enough just to plan, and it's not enough just to be careful, but you know, a real wise leader, a real effective leader is able to take what they know, take the planning that they've done, and share that passion that they have with others. Because unless you can communicate passion, I, I might be passionate about any number of things in ministry, but if I can't communicate that to anybody else, I'm just one person. I'm limited in what I can do, and unless that's shared with the body, there's not a lot that's going to happen. So a wise, a godly, and effective leader is able to, to do all those things, plan, think, be passionate about something, but also convey that to the people he is ministering with and among and motivate them to, to work as well. And that's exactly what Nehemiah uh, did. Now, what he's telling them isn't new news. Okay? Like I said, this was destroyed 140 years ago. So when Nehemiah is you know, weeping before the king, and when he's telling the Jews now in this particular portion, it's not like they were thinking, oh, I didn't realize that, the, the walls are destroyed. It's that he's presenting it to them in a new way that is causing them to, it's stirring their hearts. They're now seeing why this is an urgent thing. You know, it's so easy for us, even in the church, you know, to like, just be complacent. We can you know, allow things to just, you know, uh, settle and we can see needs around us, maybe not even in the church, but just in the world, to see uh, the tremendous need around us and just to be so used to it 
that uh, it's not that we need to be told that it's out there, it's that we need our hearts to be stirred up to be affected by it, to be motivated to action to do something. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. He's taking what they already know and he's providing that passion to spur them on to be able to move and, and do something. So we can identify the needs. He's saying, this wall is in disrepair. We're in trouble, is what he says in verse 17. Um, we shouldn't be in disgrace any longer. Let's do something. But not only that, he also says in verse 18 about the gracious hand of my God being upon me and what the king had said to me. So he's not only just saying there's a need out here, but he's also giving them eyes of faith and, and sharing that with them as well. So um, here we see that the Jews are provided with a, a godly leader who um, has this passion, he has this opportunity, and, and he shares that with, with the people, and now they have an opportunity to act out of this desire of, of their hearts. Um, you know, and as I look at this, I see so many um, things in, in, in our own church that encourage me, um, times where people in our own church have been stirred up by something and motivated to, to do something about it. I think of just a few years ago when our Children's Hope Committee was created, um, how neat that was, where a few people got together and said, yeah, this is a real need. I, I see there is a need for you know, children out there, and, and now we're doing things like uh, Compassion and um, Operation Christmas Child and Angel Tree, things we weren't doing a few years before then. All because uh, some people saw a need, uh, all because our elders said, yes, this is a, a good thing that we should be doing, this is a need, and they got behind it. Uh, all because people in this church are involved in that committee or have been involved in those ministries, whether formally or informally. If you participate in something like that, you've said, yes, this is a need, this is something we can do as a church, and that's been encouraging. Uh, and so through leadership in various ways, um, our church has been motivated to do something. Even though um, Family Fun Day wasn't able to take place this year due to weather, uh, that was an idea that was started at some point. And we were able to do that for years, you know, in the past. And we were intending to do it uh, this year. Uh, at least that was our intention. God had other plans. But it's neat when people um, catch that vision and want to do something and are motivated to action. And, and I see that alive and at work in our own church. And I say, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, Nehemiah was a good leader for all these reasons. God was with him. And he shares that. So immediately, the leaders of Jerusalem say, okay, let's start building. Uh, and it must have been a glorious moment when he shared that with them and everybody said, yes, we're on board. Let's do this thing. Um, however, just like anything in life, as quickly as that excitement started, there was some opposition. There was some roadblocks along the way. And uh, verse 19 says that when Sanballat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Gershom the, the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us saying, what are you doing? And are you rebelling against the king? Now, first of all, we have to ask, who are these men? Okay, when you hear these names, they're not familiar. So you're wondering, who are they? Well, ancient records um, in, seem to indicate that these three men, uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, were governors. Governors of the surrounding areas uh, that surrounded Jerusalem. Uh, so, uh, Sanballat uh, was supposedly the governor of Samaria, Tobiah was the governor of Ammon, and Geshem was a governor of many Arab tribes from Egypt. Again, some of this is going back into history a little bit, some of it's conjecture, so I can't say for sure, but it would seem that they're, in their role in the story that there are, some, there are people who are important, people who are a worthy threat 
to the people of Jerusalem at least. Uh, and it would seem like the, the theory of them being governors would, would fit rather well here. So thus their issue with Nehemiah probably was more political than, than anything. For Nehemiah was coming on the scene as a kind of new leader of Judah. And they didn't like this rivalry in power. They wanted to have control of this region and be the ones who kept the Jews in fear and in check. But even though these men were powerful, and even though it could have been easy for Nehemiah to be frightened by them, he didn't allow their words to, to cause him to back away from what he knew God was doing in the moment. Um, he said in verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And that's pretty important right there because that shows a good amount of courage on Nehemiah's part. And that shows the fourth character trait of godly leaders. Number four, here's your next blank. Godly leaders have eyes of faith that can see God's hand in a situation. Let me say that again. They have eyes of faith that can see God's hand in a situation which inspires others to trust God as well. Okay, they have eyes of faith. So again, here's the situation. He's coming back. He's, he's encouraged because everybody's on board with him. He says, these walls need to be rebuilt. We can't just sit around any longer. We have work to do. And everybody says, yes, let's do this. And then these three individuals uh, come along and start laughing at them, mocking them, saying things later on. Like, oh, even if a fox tried to you know, climb on your wall, it would break, break it you know, just by walking on it. Um, and this could be discouraging stuff. But Nehemiah has courage. Why? Not because he just decides to toughen up and say, oh, I'm better than they are, or I'm a stronger guy, or we have a better army than them. No, that, that probably wasn't the case at all. What gave him that courage was his faith in what God was doing. He said, verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. And, and you know, technically Nehemiah had no promise from God that these men would not attack them or wouldn't kill any of these people of Judah. Or remember, God had not spoken in a vision or of any kind of visible or audible way to Nehemiah at all. And, and you can check me on that. Go back to chapter 1. You won't see any of that. It's entirely, from our perspective, a one-way conversation. Even though we know prayer isn't that way, of course, God hears and God did respond. But what I'm trying to say is God doesn't respond and say, yes, I am with you. And he doesn't come out, down out of the clouds and say, Nehemiah, what you're going to do is going to succeed. He doesn't say any of that. Uh, all that Nehemiah has to go on is that he prayed and said, God, give me success in the sight of this man, back in chapter 1, when he was talking to the king, and God granted his request. And so what he's going off of is his analysis of what has happened so far. Nehemiah is faced with this opposition, and he's saying to himself, you know what, these people are saying they're going to destroy us, but I see God doing something entirely different here. From the very beginning, from the time that I prayed about this, this miraculous thing happened. The king listened to me. Not only did he listen to me, he gave me timber and, and officials and guards and horses and all these different things. You can read about it in chapter 1. Like, things you'd never even expect. And so when he gets to this point, the thing he is trusting in is not the fact that they have a better army or that he's just the better man or he's going to you know, beat them out in a game of chicken or whatever. 
he just, he's, he's confident because he sees God's work in it. And he, and he figures that if God has started this, then God certainly is going to finish it. This particular portion is hard for me to apply personally because I'm, I'm kind of like an, you know, a very by-the-book guy. I like to have promises that I can read in Scripture, and I like to rely just on those. And if God hasn't said it, I don't, I don't like to claim promises that God hasn't made. Okay? And one of my favorite books, actually, is uh, Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung, and we just had a Sunday school class on it like a year ago. And in that, he was really stressing about how when you're trying to figure out what God's will for your life is, rather than focus on all the subjective things, you're like, I think God's doing this, and I think God's doing that, to first start with the Bible, to know what God has called us all to do, and that is to be a witness, to grow in holiness, all those kind of things. That is God's revealed will for us. So I've never been somebody who likes to extrapolate and say, well, you know, it's God's will for me to go here or to go here or go here. I've heard it misused too many times. Sometimes it's been misused, sometimes not. But what this passage is showing us is, and again, against my own tendencies, that sometimes there is a place for that, for stepping out in faith a little bit when you can analyze the situation of your life and look at everything that God has done thus far and say, you know what, I don't have a specific promise as to what God is going to do next, but I can see what he's done in the past. And if I analyze my life, it seems as if God has been leading me in this direction. And it seems that God has opened the door for me to to do this and this and this, and maybe, just maybe, God is leading me this way. That's what Nehemiah is going off of. If God answered my prayer back here when I prayed about the king and my encounter with him, then how could this fail? I don't have to be afraid of these men. I don't have to fear them at all, because if God is working there, he's bringing me to a purpose. That's powerful. That's powerful. So if ever you're discouraged, you know, and you're just wondering at some point in your life, you know, where is my life heading? You know, what's going to become of all this? And, and you start to feel like God is indifferent to you, that things could just either fall apart or go great, or who knows, and God doesn't even care. He's indifferent. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie. No, we can't go in and, and create promises that God never made. Okay, so don't do that. But what you can do is have eyes of faith to look back at whatever, everything that God has done in your life up to this present time and say, you know what, if God has begun this, then just maybe God is directing me this way. Something to think about. It's a challenging thought. Nehemiah has the eyes of faith, and because he's able to see what God has done in the past, it causes him not to fear. Or if he is afraid, to overcome that fear. In, in the midst of maybe you know, death or, or this attack that might come, he's willing to stick it out because he knows what God is up to. So he, he withstands that, and, and he allows the work to go on. That brings us now to chapter 3. Chapter 3. And we see that because of God's providence and Nehemiah's leadership, the men of Jerusalem and the surrounding area begin rebuilding the wall without delay. Despite the threats from these men, they're able to keep on going. They're able to keep on going. And basically, as we look at chapter 3, it's nothing but a list of people who worked on the wall and the sections that they worked on. And uh, if we assume the wall encompassed the area that I've shown here on the handout, uh, then the total circumference of that wall would have been two and a half miles, give or take. 
And it's kind of hard to, to be able to judge, but that's the best estimate that we've, we've got. Um, each section then would have averaged about 250 feet. So Nehemiah apparently made sure to divide up the wall into sections that uh, would have been covered so that nothing would have been neglected. Now, if you look at chapter 3, you're like, okay, this is pretty big, Pastor Dave, how are you going to cover this? Uh, we'll read some of it. I might not read the whole thing, but we're just going to try and get a sense of it. Can I just say that in scripture reading, sometimes it's tempting just to read over the lists of names. You get to Numbers, you get to Chronicles, and you're like, all right, I'm just going to skip right over these because it doesn't seem to have anything. This is one of those sections where it's tempting just to skip right through it because you think, what in the world does this ha have here except a bunch of names? But I want to show you some things. If we read through at least some of it, you will notice some things that you probably never have noticed before. And you find that every part of the Word of God does have some value uh, and a reason for being there. So just bear with me for a second. Let's just read some of this section. And I know it'll be a lot of names, and I'm going to goof them up, and I'm going to say them confidently so I sound like I know what I'm talking about. And you just go along with it, okay? <laughs> and you can get the correct uh, pronunciations later. But we'll, we'll read this, and, and then we'll make some observations. Okay, starting in verse uh, 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work to rebuild the sheep gate. They, just, they dedicated and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah, they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Meromoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bena, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the eight men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Then the Jeshana gate was repaired by Joyada, son of Pasniah, and Meshulam, son of Besodia. They laid its beams and put its door and bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by ten men from Geboa and Mizpah. Okay, and I'm just going to stop there because I'm coming to a pretty hard name, and that's a good place for me to bail. Okay, but if you look, okay, just now take your map that I've got, and, and now compare that to what we've just read. And again, if, you, if your eyesight's all right and you can see those tiny references that are by each section in the gate, you'll see that it starts on the right-hand side. I think I don't have one with me, but I think it starts on the right-hand side and goes counterclockwise around. Now, there's some exceptions to this, but it's kind of cool. Like, before I had that map, I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize this. It just sounds like a bunch of names, you know? But he's going around like this and and uh, covering each section of the wall with a different group of people. And I'm not going to read the rest of it, but if you, if you did, you would find that it covers every single section of the wall. Um, now, again, you could skip over this list, but there'd be several things that you'd miss. And I, I just want to share some of those with you in the time we got left. First of all, let's look at the people who did the work. Did you notice how many individuals there were? Okay, for all those hard names, I was trying really hard to, to fake, okay? Uh, just go through and, and glance over that and see how many individuals are named. Okay, these are strong guys. Guys who are repairing walls. And I don't know what kind of rocks they're lifting, but these are individuals now. It's not like, and the family of this 
person went and rebuilt the wall, and the family of this guy went over here. These are individuals who are like, no, I can take a whole section of the wall myself. And they're just, you know, putting stones up, and there's a lot of these guys doing some hard work. Okay? Um, verse 4, for example, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired the next section. It's not saying, like, some other people with him. He did that section, okay, by himself. Um, and it goes on and on and on like that. It seems like the majority of the sections were done by individuals. Another interesting thing, you notice all the different kinds of people who work. So it says priests, Levites, governors, ordinary people. Everybody worked, people of all classes. Now if you caught this section, you'll see in verse 5, jump to that in your Bibles, it says the nobles of the Tekoites refused to help. You know, and that's unfortunate, but now they're forever remembered as the lazy ones. <laughs> you know, so be careful that you always work hard, or you might be remembered through history as that lazy you know, relative or something like that. So you don't want that to happen. So here you go. Poor Tekoites, that's That was their own choice. But aside from that, if you just glance through, you'll see people of all different you know, economic classes and social classes and all that helped to rebuild this thing. Uh, everybody did their part. Uh, don't let this long list cause you to miss, miss, um, miss the fact that some of these men did incredible amounts of the wall. Look at how much uh, Hanan and the residents of Zenoa did in verse 13. Okay, I'm in verse 13 now. It says, The valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. They also repaired 500 yards of the wall as far as the dung gate. So if you look in your map, it's 500 yards. That's 1,500 feet. That's 600% of the average that was done by everybody else. So these were strong guys. These were motivated guys, okay, and girls. Okay, I'm not saying it's just guys. But uh, you notice that men from all over help, men from Jericho, Gibeon are also mentioned. Men and women from the entire land rallied together to make this happen. Everyone came together to build the wall. And what I'm trying to say is there is a lot that we can learn even from just reading these names just by taking some time to learn. So if you're ever discouraged by a portion of scripture, you know, don't get too discouraged because there might be something there. Never just think of certain portions as just being a boring list. Um, but that, that's all interesting and well and good. What does this say about leadership? Because after all, if you go back to your, your uh, outline, that's what our sermon is about tonight. What does it say about godly leadership since that's what we're talking about? Well, here's your last blank. Godly leaders both organize and recognize those who labor for God's kingdom. Godly leaders organize and recognize those who labor for God's kingdom. So Nehemiah took on this huge task. And from the looks of it, you could just easily walk around this wall and say, how in the world are we ever going to do this? You know, depending on how high the wall had to be and how heavy these stones are, you just say, well, there's no way. But he organized it in such a way that it became doable. He took a big task and shrunk it down into meaningful, smaller, doable tasks. And by doing so, he made it possible for it to be completed. So he was an organizer. But he also recognized the people that uh, did this wall as well. Because after all, who wrote the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. It says I in the, in the first chapter. So this is written from his perspective. He is the guy that's recognizing these people. He's the one who remembered their names and wrote them down. He didn't just say, oh yeah, there's a bunch of people who did the, did the wall. 
He's saying, yeah, this man did this, and this family did this, and these guys from over here came and helped in this section and built it up to this section. Not only did he organize them, but he also recognized them. He gave proper credit, and he encouraged them in doing so, I'm sure, by, by giving them that, that proper credit. And now we remember them for all time because their names are, are listed here. So a godly leader organizes, but also recognizes those who do the work of ministry. So here's my concluding question for you. What kind of leader are you? It might be tempting for you to take a look at this list and then start thinking in your mind of all the leaders that you know and say, huh, I wonder if they do that and that and that. No, well, I'd give them like a B on that, maybe a D on that. No, let's not. Let, how are you doing in that? Because it's not just that there's a few leaders that we all know. A lot of us lead in just in various ways, whether it's in your family, whether it's at work, whether it's among your own siblings, you know, in certain situations, whether it's just among friends. How well do you lead? If you were to take this list of all these characteristics that we named, you know, ask yourself, how much of your life is really uh, preceded by prayer? But it's the first one we talked about. We didn't cover it in detail because it was from chapter one. But before everything that you do, whatever task you set out to do, do you start first by praying about it? Um, do you carefully analyze the situation? Are you somebody who runs into the next task and just does it without thinking it through? Are you somebody who puts the proper planning into to whatever it needs to be done? Um, do you see real needs? And do you have the energy to, to identify them and point them out to people and encourage others to, to go in and get to work? Are you, are you somebody who just sits around and, you know, if, if things aren't going well, you're just like, well, that's, that's how it is. There's nothing really I can do about it. I'll let somebody else, you know, take the lead or somebody else come up with the ideas. Are you somebody that can identify the needs and then also motivate others? Do you have eyes of faith like Nehemiah had? Nehemiah saw in the midst of opposition what God had done in the past, and that changed his heart. That changed his attitude. It made him less fearful. And, and maybe if, if tonight you're fearful of something, maybe it's because you're not looking back enough at the things that God has done in your life up until this very point. How well are you doing in that? And finally, um, do you organize people together and do you recognize others who do the work? Do you try and just get um, all the recognition yourself? Or do you say thank you a lot? Are you, are you a thankful person? Somebody says, you know, that kind thing you did for me, thank you so much. That work that you did uh, for this church event that took so, much, so many hours of your time and so much preparation, thank you so much for doing that. You know, the thing you did with the family, thank you for babysitting the other day. Thank you. Yeah, are you a thankful person? That is a quality of, of godly and wise and effective leadership. And uh, it's so encouraging that we have this example in Nehemiah. It's why it's one of my favorite books, just to read what Nehemiah did. No, he's not a perfect guy. And the, and the books of the Bible aren't given to us so we can see all these perfect individuals. He had his flaws too. But there are shining moments where we can look at these individuals who did practice what righteousness looks like. <laughs> see what I did there. And, uh, and then lived it out. And, and it's left behind for our, our, uh, our example to follow. May we be godly leaders. May we strive to uh, admire leaders who are like this. And may we model that in our own lives as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I uh, thank you for this example in the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for 
uh, the way in which he had eyes of faith. Thank you for the way in which he saw a need. He carefully organized it. He uh, had the, uh, the energy and the resolve to do something about it, to motivate others to action. Uh, thank you for the way in which he um, used his, his different talents and, and recognized the abilities of others, the way he mobilized a large group of people to do what many probably thought could never be done. God, may you cause us to be godly and wise leaders in whatever situation you've placed us in. Help us to bear these same characteristics. And above all, God, help us to see you at work in whatever situation we may find ourselves in. May we not ever grow prideful, thinking that it's because of our efforts that we are able to accomplish anything. But God, like Nehemiah, may we recognize that it's entirely through your hand that anything or any work of your kingdom gets done. So may we give you the proper praise and glory for everything you accomplish in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.